Well, good morning, Bel Air. Well, those of us who are here in the sanctuary, and of course, those joining online, uh, I want to welcome you to our worship this Sunday. And it's a new year, and we're in a new series. In fact, we've been exploring from Scripture in very practical and tangible ways what would it look like for us to live out our mission, to follow Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone. And so we've been looking at some of the most famous teachings from Jesus, the parables, and these stories that Jesus told in the first century were shocking. They caused the listeners to have their jaws figuratively just hit the floor because of the points that Jesus was making. And the problem is, is that we've had these stories for so long, we've become so familiar with them that in some ways they've become sanitized, that we misunderstand the weight and the cultural significance from the first century. And so if you haven't been with us, I encourage you to go on our website. You can go also onto iTunes and listen to some of these messages. Uh, Last week we covered the parable of the Good Samaritan, and it's shocking uh, to see actually where Jesus reads himself into the story. And as we get to this story today, we're going to hear about a story of a father and his two sons. And in so many ways, for some of us, we've heard this story taught many times, we've studied it, we've read books about it, and it's very tempting or easy for us to say, this is the one point that Jesus makes, to overlook the many layers and the depth and the richness of what Jesus is communicating in this story. And so, to help with that, we've asked the Bella Drama Department to take a look at what if this story was told and experienced today in 2016. Take a listen. There once was a successful man from the Midwest who owned a large farming conglomerate. This man had two sons. The younger of the two said to his father, Father, I know you don't want to hear this, but I'm not a farmer. I want to make movies in Hollywood. And to do that, I need you to give me my share of your estate. And even though he knew his son was really saying he wished he was dead, The father sold his most profitable division and gave the money to his younger son. The son immediately flew off to Hollywood and began living as if he was already successful. But he soon discovered that in chasing his dream, he had squandered away both his fortune and all of his newly acquired hipster friends. The son had no choice but to live out of his car until the car was repossessed, leaving the son homeless and living outside a large grocery store, forced to dumpster dive to survive. Day after day, he saw his father's trucks drive up and make their deliveries to the store. He longed to fill himself with anything from those trucks, but no one gave him anything. Then came the day when he came to himself and said, How many of my father's undocumented workers have food to spare? But I'm here dying of hunger. I will hitchhike back to the Midwest and I will say, Father, I've lost everything. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your laborers. So he set off and found his way back home. When he was dropped off at the edge of the farm, the father's foreman texted his boss about his son's return. And the father was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around his son and kissed him. When the son tried to get out his prepared speech, the father cut him off and said, Send out an Evite. Order the best barbecue. Let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. And everyone from all over the county drove in for the celebration. 
Now, the elder son was out working in the field and didn't check his messages. When he rolled in at the end of the day, he saw the party, so he called over one of his father's workers and asked what was going on. When the elder son found out the reason for the festivity, he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and asked him to go inside and greet his long-lost brother. But the elder brother said, Father, I've been working like a dog for you. I've never left home or betrayed you, yet you've never thrown a party for me. But when my loser brother comes home after burning through all of your money on ladies of ill repute, you pull out all the stops. Son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. I'm, I'm sorry you feel jealous or, or insecure, but today we rejoice because this brother of yours was as good as dead, and now he's come back to life. Come, celebrate with us. And the father went back and joined the party, and the elder brother sat outside, content to wallow in bitterness at his own pity party. We hear the story. And the same happened in the nine o'clock. There was this moment where there's a line written in where uh, it says that the younger son kind of wished his father dead. And there was a chuckle in the nine. There's a chuckle here because we often think, oh, that's kind of a funny line. But actually, that's how removed from the context of this first century story was because the reality was is that when the younger son asked for his father's inheritance, we will see that it was as bad, if not worse, than actually wanting his dad dead. Let's take a look at the story that Jesus tells. If you have those Bibles, it's in the pew in front of you. If you're in the front row, if you don't know this little cubby right behind your leg, that red book in the pew is our pew Bible. We're going through the New Revised Standard Version if you have a mobile device. And it's on page 850. We're going to Luke chapter 15. And I'm going to read for us verses 11 all the way through 32. And as you're turning there, this is a moment in the ministry of Jesus where he is having meals with people that the religious leaders typically wouldn't have meals with. And so as a result, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they're, they're grumbling and they're saying, why on earth would Jesus spend time with these sinners, those people? Not us, but those people. Why would Jesus spend time with those people? And so Jesus tells three stories, a story of a lost coin, a story of a lost sheep, and this story. Let's pick up here in Luke 15, verses 11, all the way through 32. Then Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and yet no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up. I will go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. 
So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father, father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, put his arms around him, and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years, I've been working like a slave for you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me, even me, a young goat, so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? And the father said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This, my friends, concludes the reading of God's Word. And as we've been going through this series, I've also been introducing three questions that I'd like for you to consider, for you to ask. Uh, rather than me at the end of this sermon saying, here's what I want you to learn and here's who I want you to be and this is what I want you to do, I want us while we're together, and even if you're listening online, to not just be present here, but to truly see you have an opportunity this morning to be with God. And in prayer, to ask God perhaps these three questions. The first, God, what do you want me to learn? God, what do you want me to learn? Literally, you can be praying that while you're hearing me teach, while we're here in this room or you're listening online. God, what do you want me to learn from this, from this text? And second, God, who do you want me to be in light of this? My character on the inside. God, who do you want me to be in light of this? And then finally, as you're prayerfully listening to this, God, what do you want me to do in response to this? Now, I've been asking these questions to God this week as I've been praying this, and uh, I know it might sound odd, but as I'm preaching, I'm literally up here praying at the same time, God, what do you want me to learn from this? And God, who do you want me to be in light of this? And God, what do you want me to do in response to this? Because we believe that God's Spirit knows your hearts, knows my heart better than anyone else. And ultimately, it's God that leads us, God that transforms us, God that motivates us to live for Him. So, let's just pause for a moment and pray for you to just really realize how much of a point I'm trying to make that this isn't just me up here up front trying to teach you so that you can go live a better life, but ultimately we are all at the feet of Jesus seeking His leading, His direction. Let's pray. God, what an opportunity we have in the midst of this week to go before You, the King of kings, the Creator of all things the source of all love and light and goodness, and that we have an opportunity to sit at your feet. And I pray that you would teach us, 
through the power of your spirit and through your word. It's already alive. It's already active. It's, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it, it penetrates deep into our hearts on this Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, Jesus is telling this story to a group of religious leaders who are looking down their noses at those people, wondering why would Jesus spend time with those people? And he tells the story of a lost coin and a lost sheep. And often we simply refer to this story as the lost son, the prodigal son. And Scripture originally when it was written didn't have chapters, it didn't have verses, it didn't have section headings. And my translation here that we have in the New Revised Standard Version, it literally says the parable of the prodigal and his brother. And it's easy to think, and it actually would be misleading to think, that it's only the younger son who is lost. And it's so easy for us to read this story, and of course, we should read God the Father as the Father in this story. And Of course, we're going to talk about God's compassionate love. Of course, today we're going to talk about God's forgiveness. And it's very easy to take a look at the younger son and say, well, that's the one lost person in this story. And then kind of forget about the older brother, as if the older brother is kind of just tacked on to the end of the story that's really about the younger son. But the reality is that Jesus so masterfully is summing up the lost coin and the lost sheep parable by telling this story of two lost sons. You see, there's a younger brother, there's an older brother, and both of them are equally lost. Both of them are estranged from the father. Both of them are equally in need of a transformation. Both of them equally are missing out on the love that God the Father has for them. It's already there, but they, they need to do something, to change something in their life, how they're living, the direction that they're going in order to experience that love firsthand. And so as we walk through this, we need to be very careful to not just say, well, it's just about the younger brother. You see, in a moment, we'll see that it's not just about that and the older brother, but there's actually other characters in the story that we so easily brush by. So again, keep asking God those questions. God, what do you want me to learn? Who do you want me to be? And what do you want me to do? Well, first, let's take a look at this, this context here. So what's going on? So in the first century, for a son to go to a father and say, I want my inheritance now, literally, in the first century, literally, that son is saying to the father, I want you dead. Because in the first century, a child would only get the inheritance after the father had died. And so for him to say, I want it now, is saying, I don't, I don't care about you. I don't need you. I don't want you. I don't want to get to know you. I don't want to have any more meals with you. I don't want to spend time with you. I just want what you have to give to me. Parents, grandparents, if you've ever experienced that, a child saying to you, a grandchild saying to you, somebody that you love very much, even beyond parenting relationships, if you've ever had somebody say to you in no certain terms, I don't need you, I don't want you, I wish you were just dead, but I want all that you give, all that you have, I mean, what kind of place would that put your heart in? Think about the pain, think about the anguish that the father had in that moment when the younger son said, I don't need you, but I want all that you would give me and I want it now. 
And think about the generosity of that father who acquiesces, who literally gives the son his share of the inheritance, who this son then takes that, sells it, and goes off and lives an absolutely broken, an absolutely destructive lifestyle. So much so that that person runs out of money. And we see that their choices in their selfish desire to, to, to be filled up absolutely cause themselves to be utterly broken. They hit absolute rock bottom. But that single choice that that younger brother makes actually begins to unravel the family. We know what it's like when we have somebody in our family who gets wrapped up in addiction or brokenness or who has something in their life that is so significant that it begins to reverberate throughout the family. We know that single actions in a family have massive implications throughout the whole. And this is what happens in this story. Not only is this younger brother hitting rock bottom, but it's broken, it's fractured, it's torn apart this family. And even deeper than that, it's actually torn apart the greater community. You see, there's this moment in the story that if we don't understand the first century cultural context, we can easily overlook. In fact, for a Jewish person, if we understand the Old Testament here, we know that a pig is considered unclean. And there's this moment where this younger brother has hit such rock bottom. Right here in verse 15, it says, he goes and he hires himself out to one of the citizens of this faraway country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. His very job goes against his cultural heritage, his faith background. He's estranged from himself, from his family, and his community. He hits such rock bottom that he longs to eat the same food as the very unclean animal that he can't even touch. Whether you've experienced it, you've seen a family member, you've seen a friend, you've seen somebody somewhere, we know what it looks like when somebody hits rock bottom. Utter despair. This younger brother has absolutely gotten to a place where they can't help themselves. And it's easy to say, it's easy to agree, I'm sure all of us would collectively say, that younger brother was lost. But the reality is the older brother was equally as lost. Let's take a look at why. If you have those Bibles, open them back up. I know some of you put them away, but you'll see here in verse 25, and we'll get back to the center of the story with the father and the son in a moment, but let's take a look at this older brother. See why I would say that this older brother is equally as lost. Well, verse 25, it says this, now his elder brother was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. And you just heard me read earlier that this servant replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has gotten him back safe and sound. And this elder brother, listen to this, verse 28, then he became angry and refused to go in. Now, we need to understand that in the first century, it was the firstborn son that would get the majority of the inheritance. It was the firstborn son that was due the majority of the estate. And so when this younger brother wanted his inheritance now, though it was the smaller portion, not only was he saying to his father, I wish you were dead and I want it now, he's also saying to the older brother, I don't respect you. I don't respect the fact that you're the firstborn son. 
I don't care if I'm going to eat into the lion's share of your inheritance. I, I don't care if your side would have grown even more had I not taken it now. And so, we don't know how long this younger brother has been gone, but the elder brother, we can assume, based upon his reaction, hasn't forgotten the fact that the younger brother took his share early. He's walked around with the bitterness, with contempt, with an inability to forgive. And not only is he angry, he refuses to go in. He refuses to participate in forgiveness. He refuses to extend compassion. He refuses to, to have anything to do with grace. You see, because the way that he lives his life is equally as lost, is equally as broken, is equally as separated from the Father. Take a look at this. In verse 20, his father comes out, begins to plead with him. But he answers his father, listen, for all these years, I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your commands. I'm the good son. He's the bad son. I show up. I put my time in. I do my work. I've done all these things, and yet you've never killed a calf for me so I could celebrate with my friends. You see, the younger son says, I want the inheritance now, and I'm going to live how I want to live. But ultimately, I don't want a relationship with you, Father. I just want what you have to give me. The older brother is saying the same thing, but he goes about it a different way. He's basically saying, I don't really want you, Father. I want what you would give me, and so therefore, I'm going to stay. I'm going to put in my hard time. I'm going to have good deeds. I'm going to obey all that you ask so that you will give me what I truly want. You see, at the end of the day, each of those brothers was equally lost. They don't want the relationship with the Father. They simply want what the Father would give them. And it's so subtle, it's so easy to overlook. But the reality is, is that this church, every church is made up of younger siblings and older siblings. People who show up who are absolutely broken in a way that people notice, they can see. They're wrapped in addiction. They're, they're getting out of a hugely dysfunctional way of life. And we can see those things and say, oh yeah, that person is absolutely in need of God's love, in need of God's forgiveness. But at the same time, the person that is self-sufficient, that thinks that their good deeds, that their morality is the impetus for God's love, is the catalyst so that God will love them, they're equally in need of saving. They're equally in need of God's forgiveness. They're equally in need of God's grace. But the problem is, is so often the only stories that we tell are younger brother stories. Man, this lady, she just got out of addiction. This is amazing. Look what God did in her life. And very rarely do we tell the stories of, look at this person. They've grown up in church their whole life. They've served in a variety of ways. And the problem was is they were self-sufficient. They were relying on their service, on their good deeds, and their attendance at church. And God saved them from that. You're looking at me like, is that a story? You see, because we live in a nation that is built on self-sufficiency. 
and we bring culturally into these moments and even into our faith, into Scripture, into following Jesus, this idea that if I just pull myself up by the bootstraps, Drew, just give me a list of things that I need to do. Give me the 10 steps of how I'm supposed to live then, right? Isn't then I'm going to get all the things that God blesses me? The peace and the prosperity, the relationship that I want, the job that I want. And then when we don't get it, we get mad at God, we get angry at God. We don't go in and celebrate with Him and we say, God, I've done all these things for you. Why didn't I get the promotion? Why didn't I get the job? Why did I get that diagnosis? You see, on one hand, both of these brothers are the same. They're both equally lost. And the love of the Father has been there the whole time. Equally there for both brothers. But at the end of the story, with a huge twist, we find that the younger son is now inside the home experiencing in very tangible ways that love of the father. And the older brother is now outside, not experiencing, not tangibly participating in that great love and forgiveness of God. So what's the difference? So on one hand, both of the brothers are the same. We have a God and a father here in this story that equally loves the same, equally forgives the same. What's the difference that enables that younger son to be on the inside at the end of the story? Open those Bibles back up. There's one key that unlocks the whole thing that is so easy to overlook, and a lot of it has to do with the English language. You notice there in verse 17, right there in the middle of the story, it says this. This is about the younger brother. This is, he's in the distant country. He's lost all of his money. He's squandered everything. He's absolutely hungry. No one's helping him. And verse 17 says, but when he came to himself. Now, there's a phrase here that is easy to overlook. And it's a Semitic idiom. So in the first century, they would use this phrase, and he came to himself. Some translations say, he came to his senses. It literally means that he repented. Now, to repent means that you're headed one direction, and you literally turn, face the other direction, and you go the opposite way. And so, when this phrase here, he came to his senses, he came to himself, it literally means that he was at the end of his rope, he realized he was going the wrong direction. All the things that he thought that those decisions and that money and that lifestyle would give him, he realized it didn't pay out. And therefore, he repented and he turned. Now, the word repent is, in so many ways, it's fallen out of popularity in our culture. And it's so easy to look at repentance and say, you know, man, the people that ask for forgiveness, they're weak. The people that confess, they got problems. They're insecure. They just want to grovel before God. That's a misunderstanding of the word repentance. In fact, Jesus, when He came, He said so often, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Repent, repent, repent. We see this throughout all of Scripture, actually. So Jesus upholds repentance. Martin Luther, who was very instrumental to be a catalyst in the Protestant Reformation, if any of you understand church history, but there was this moment in the history of the church where things had become so corrupt, so polluted, that people felt that they had to pay for, to give the church money so that they would receive grace, so that they would know that they were in a right relationship with God. And so Martin Luther and others 
began to protest. They wanted to reform the church. And some of you might have heard of Martin Luther's 95 Theses. Remember, he nailed those, the Wittenberg door. The very first one of the 95 things that Martin Luther said to get us back to health, to get us back to what Scripture says, to get us back to be the type of people that God longs for us to be, the first was this. He says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, He willed that it would be for the life of the believer his entire life. Martin Luther starts off his reformation, he starts off a change of health by saying it's got to begin with repentance. It's got to begin with us realizing that we're headed the wrong way and it's got to begin with us turning and facing the right direction. But we can get repentance so wrong. In fact, 2 Corinthians 7.10, if you want to read it later, actually talks about there's two different types of repentance. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, it says that there's godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that actually leads to salvation and it leads to life. And there's worldly sorrow that leads to death. You see, many of us, when we think of repentance, we actually think of worldly sorrow. We think of worldly repentance. And worldly sorrow and worldly repentance is more like, you know, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry that I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And when we say sorry, it's not that we're really sorry for what we did. It's not that we're sorry that we hurt somebody else. But we're actually sorry that now there's a broken relationship between us. That there's now discomfort at the person who's mad at us. So sometimes there's worldly sorrow. Let's say somebody is yelling at you and they're upset at you and you're like, all right, I'm sorry already. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's worldly sorrow. It's worldly repentance because we're not really sorry what we did. We're just sorry we did it because now we've got to feel the brunt and the pain. So we just want that person off our back. And so sometimes if we go to God and we have worldly sorrow or worldly repentance, we think of God as this angry judge who's out to get us. And we look at our mistakes, and we're like, oh, God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Let up, let up, let up. If all these things are going on in my life or because I, I messed up, I'm sorry. Just lay off me for a bit. That's not what this younger brother does. Or sometimes we think of godly sorrow as kind of a, a regret that we didn't do things that would be mutually beneficial to us or the other person. Gosh, you know, I, I, I wish I didn't bet on the Packers last week. Oh, I, 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 I'm sorry for that. A few football fans here know what I'm talking about. And we have this sorrow, and it's not really godly sorrow. You see, right here, the younger brother models for us what godly repentance should look like. Models for us the beginning of actually being able to experience the love of God that has been extended to us before we were even born. You see, God's love begins with himself. It doesn't begin with us. But the experience of God's love, for us to actually experience it, to to participate in it, to enjoy it, and all of its benefits, actually begins with our repentance. And the younger brother gets it right, and he does it this way. Take a look at this. He says this in verse 18. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. You see, godly repentance is a vertical repentance and a horizontal repentance. It begins with saying, I've sinned against God. The, the wrong that I've done, it actually it hurts God's heart most of all. 
In Psalm 51, we can see King David, how he repents after he sleeps with Bathsheba, who's married to somebody else, after he kills Bathsheba's husband to cover it up, after all of that, how does he ask for forgiveness? How does he repent? Well, he does it in a godly way, in a biblical way, and he says, God, you alone I've sinned against. You alone I've wronged. You see, godly repentance isn't fixating on the wrong that you've done. It's acknowledging who you've wronged. You see, there's a young man who's a pastor of a church that I used to be at, and I, I, was, I mentored him, and he was this great young man who's now a pastor, and we went through his ordination exams a couple weeks ago. And in the midst of uh, the ordination exam, he told this story that was so phenomenal. He tells the story of when he was a kid, and he was really into airsoft guns. Some of you have heard of airsoft. It's kind of like a BB gun, but it's, it's not as dangerous. And uh, he literally had this moment where he's playing with his younger brother, and he thought the gun was unloaded, and so he uh, put the gun up to his brother's head, and he thought it would be funny, make his son scared, and he went so far to actually pull the trigger. The problem was there was one little, little airsoft little pellet in there, just knocked the brother over. He didn't have too much of an injury, but, he, you know, he had a, it started to bleed and such. And, of course, the parents were upset. Oh, man, they were upset. And so in that moment, he was sorry. He was absolutely sorry. But he was actually sorry because now he was in trouble. You know, his parents granted him. And he tells a story. It was a couple weeks ago. And he says, you know, yes, I did that thing. But at the end of the day, my parents forgave me. And, you know, and it hasn't ruined my life. It hasn't ruined my ability to get a job. I don't have this, like, status that I carry around with me that everybody knows that I shot my brother. And so, you know, it was bad, but it wasn't that bad. And this guy tells a story, he says, but what if I did the same thing to the President of the United States? No different in terms of what I've done, but the difference is, is whom I've done it to. In that moment, he would have been hauled to jail. He would have been put on a watch list. It would have been on his record, most likely, for the rest of his employment career. It might cause him to not be able to get a job. He might have to go everywhere. Everyone knowing in public, that's the kid, that's the kid. He's crazy, right? It would absolutely change everything. And that's just the President of the United States. But what happens if we sin against the King of Kings? We've done high treason against the most powerful being in the cosmos. Same action. Just a little white lie. Just a little cover-up. You see, when you begin to understand that you've sinned, not just against the person or the company or the thing, but against God Himself. Repentance then acknowledges first, God, I've wronged you. And then it's a horizontal repentance. In the story of a father, I've wronged you. Not coming with excuses. Now, you know, but I mean, everybody was doing it, so it wasn't, you know. So often when we have the horizontal repentance, the horizontal confession, we do so. And we add a whole bunch of excuses after the fact as well. But it's simply, I'm going to go to my father and say, I've wronged you. But then there's something else, actually, that the younger brother gets wrong here. And it's so easy to overlook. Take a look at this. The end of that speech says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's basically saying, what I have done now makes my status as a son wiped away. 
that my brokenness trumps my relationship with my father? In a moment, we'll see where that's beginning to go down the wrong path. And he goes on, he says, and I will say to him, treat me like one of your hired hands. Now, a hired hand is different than a servant who lives on the property, who experiences some of the, the food and the shelter that the father could provide. You see, a hired hand is somebody that lives somewhere else, eats somewhere else, comes onto the property to do the work, to get the money, to then go off. Literally, the only thing they receive is money due from their work. And so the speech this younger brother is preparing is this. He says, I'm going to go to my father and say, I've sinned against heaven and against you. That's a good start. But then I don't want any of your grace. I don't want any of your mercy. I want to earn my way back. I want to pay off my debt. I'm going to be a hired hand. I don't need your shelter. I don't need your clothing. I don't need your food. I'm going to be a hired hand so that I can somehow earn my way back into the household. And it's so tempting for us after a time away, after a time where we've gotten caught up in addiction or selfishness or all the things that we get caught up in. It's so easy. It's tempting to think that somehow we've got to earn our way back in. We've got to make up for our mistakes. And Baylor, you and I, we've got to catch this point that Jesus makes because look what happens. Verse 20, he sets off, goes to his father. And while he was still far off, I love this, the father sees him. The father's filled with compassion. It's the same word from last week that the good Samaritan had for the person beaten up, left for dead in the ditch. The father has compassion. And he runs. To the younger son. Now, first century patriarchs don't run. Kids run. Fathers in the first century don't run. Can you see him picking up his robe and sprinting to his son? He's not waiting inside the house saying, gosh, he better have a good reason. He's not sitting in the house saying, he better come groveling. He's not sitting inside the house saying, we'll see. We'll see if I forgive him. No, he goes running. Running to the son. His relationship with his son trumps no matter what bad deeds he's ever done. And he says this. The son says to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And right then and there, the father cuts him off. He cuts him off right there. Right there, he cuts him off. He acknowledges the fact that he sinned against heaven, acknowledges the fact that he sinned against him, but he cuts him off the moment he begins to say, I'm not worthy to be called your son, because what does he do? He treats him like a son. He yells to the servants, go get the robe, now put it on him. Get the ring, put it on him, kill the fatted calf, we're going to have a celebration. And in that moment, we are reminded that we have a God who is a loving, compassionate Father who doesn't want us to earn back His love. But rather, when we repent, when we turn back to Him in that moment, He comes running to us. Long before we could ever earn back His love, He says, you are my son, you are my child. All the benefits, all the inheritance, all of it, it's yours. 
I love you. I adore you. I want to clothe you, and I want you to experience it tangibly. I'm not just going to talk about it, tell you about it. I want you to experience it now. You see, it was the younger son's repentance that was the trigger, was the fuse that detonated the experience of the father's love. It had always been there, but now he could experience it. And the problem was is that the older son, at least in this story, didn't do it. He hadn't repented. He hadn't turned. The father's love was still there, but he couldn't see it. And at the end of the story, he was left outside. You see, remember at the beginning of the sermon, I said there's things that God wants us to learn, there's things that God wants us to be, and there's things that God wants us to do, and that's going to be different for every single one of you and for me. But the reality is that every single one of us has to begin with repentance. Maybe you've come in here as a younger sibling, and you know absolutely that you're far from God. Know that if you turn in this moment, if you confess, not because of His anger, but because of His kindness… If you see God, your Father, running to you, Scripture says it's your kindness, Lord, that leads you and leads us to repentance. If you can see that today, you can actually experience in tangible ways this love that God wants to lavish upon you. Maybe you need to repent from that, but some of you, you're the elder sibling, and you need to repent from feeling like your good deeds that God owes you, that you've got this record that you don't see paying off that you have this bitterness, that you are like the Pharisees and the tax collectors that are looking down their nose and saying, why are they hanging out with those people? But actually, there's another character in this story that we often overlook. Let me conclude with this. The end of verse 16, it says this. After he's longing to eat the food that the pigs were eating, it says this, and no one gave him anything. This is so easy to overlook, so easy to miss. And I would have overlooked it. I would have missed it except for a seminary professor at Fuller Theological Seminary who made this point. He traveled all over the world doing missionary work, and this is a famous text. And he would often go to the Christians and the, the church leaders and say, okay, when we read this story, what's the biggest wrong in this story? And of course, in the West, we look at the younger brother and we say, that's the wrong. That's the wrong. That's the problem there. In some cultures, they would say, it's, the problem is the older brother. That's the problem. But in certain cultures, it wasn't the younger brother. It wasn't the older brother. It was what happened in the distant country. You see, in a culture that was much like the first century, perhaps more like the Middle East, where hospitality is such a value, which is such a value that Scripture says that we should have, they would look at this story and they would say, that's the problem. The fact that this young man was in another country and no one brought him in? No one cared for him? No one opened up their doors? No one invited him to their tables? You mean, you mean he was that bad and no one gave him anything? That's the wrong. And I remember that professor saying that in the class, and the whole class just had this aha moment. Because the reality is, yes, Los Angeles is our home, but for millions of people, Los Angeles is somebody else's distant country. And there are people here in Los Angeles who have chased a lifestyle that they think is going to give them joy, and they're absolutely at the end of the rope. They've hit rock bottom. 
and they're people that you and I pass every day. That are people that we, we, we overlook. And we actually are perpetuating that wrong. When we don't sit down with them, when we don't ask them their name, when we don't share a meal with them, when we don't invite them into our homes, when we don't actively participate in restoring them, when we don't have the love of a father that goes running to them. You see, there's so many layers here. It's phenomenal. If we actually allow Scripture to begin to peel back the layers of our hearts, I can actually begin to say, wow, God, I've got a long list of things that I need to repent from. How easily I overlook the people that I pass every day. And my hope and my prayer is that no matter where you are on your journey today, that you would see a father that has a great compassionate love for you. And may that be the impetus, may that be the catalyst that causes you to turn and say, I want you more than what you give me. Let's pray. God, Scripture tells us in the book of Romans that all have sinned, that all fall short, that there's things that we want to do that we can't do and things that we don't want to do that we still do. And God, we've wronged you. But how great and glorious is the same reminder in Scripture that you, you, while we were still sinners, while we are spiritually far from you, that you demonstrated your love to us in this, that you sent your Son to die for us, to go to the cross, to give up his inheritance, so to speak, to be the perfect brother for us that gives us all the inheritance so that faith and trust in Jesus would cause God you to look at us, to clothe us with righteousness, to call us your child, to bring us into a family and to experience that for all of eternity. So God, as we sit, as we reflect, as we hear these words sung, or as we sing along as well, may we see your deep, deep love, your goodness. And may that kindness lead all of us to repent, to turn from the ways in which we've wronged you, from our bad deeds or our good deeds. And may we simply hold on to you. It's in your name, Jesus. Amen.